hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Joseph Langham, let the world go free. He sent it in to me 
original artists that are out there listening, please keep the McCullough Report on your radar screen. Uh, I never thought a scientific program would be such a beacon for protest music, but that's exactly what the McCullough Report is. We try to bring all kinds of interesting thoughts, interesting uh, and wonderful entertainment from our artists, and I'm actually privileged to get to know so many terrific artists all over the world. We have a great program for you today. I wanted to give you a quick update. I was just contacted by the major news uh, in the last hour or so regarding the breaking development, and that deals with the issue of hepatitis or liver damage, acute liver inflammation occurring after COVID-19 vaccination and potentially other environmental insults. Uh, a paper has just hit the wires from Brill and colleagues, B-R-I-L, from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. It was published in the Journal of Hepatology. The title of the paper is Autoimmune Hepatitis Developing After COVID, uh, After Corona Disease 19, COVID-19 Vaccination, Causality or uh, Casualty. And uh, it's a 35-year-old woman who's postpartum. She took the vaccine, developed hepatitis. She was on some other drugs which were uh, not implicated. Uh, and it does, the hepatitis is a form of cholestatic hepatitis where there's not only liver inflammation, but uh, there is jaundice that happens. So the eyes turn yellow. It's readily apparent. There's generalized itching and, and a feeling of lethargy or malaise. And uh, takes a workup. In this case, uh, this woman ended up having lots of blood tests. She had a liver biopsy, had to get uh, treatment in the hospital and have this resolve. Uh, so it is happening now. The real question is, is it really due to the vaccine or not? And now another case has uh, come in from uh, Boatler and colleagues, B-O-E-T-T-L-E-R and colleagues. Uh, and this is also published in the Journal of Hepatology, uh, the April 21st um, edition online. Title of the paper is SARS-CoV-2 Vaccination Can Elicit a CD8 T-Cell Dominant Hepatitis. This is a 52-year-old male presenting with uh, acute uh, mixed hepatocellular uh, cholestatic hepatitis. That means the AST, ALT, uh, and the GGT, which are what's called transaminases, are elevated, but also uh, the uh, total uh, bilirubin is elevated than the alkaline phosphatase, suggesting that the bile just doesn't flow normally and patients get quite sick. This patient also required uh, intervention in the hospital. Fortunately, so far, no uh, patients have been, have been transplanted. Uh, and then the last report I just got in from a major news producer that wants me to potentially respond, and I wanted to... Um, bring this up. Uh, and this came through the UK uh, Daily Mail. And uh, the title of the, the um, piece is called Alarming Outbreak of Hepatitis in Children May Have Been Brought On by COVID Lockdowns Weakening Immunity to a Normal Virus, Health Chiefs Say As U.S. Cases Hit 11. Uh, and here, the, um, these are children developing uh, hepatitis and, uh, and, and here the inciting agent may be uh, a virus, a, a common virus. Uh, nine cases have been spotted uh, in Alabama, two in North Carolina. One youngster has died uh, and 17 needed um, uh, critical liver transplants uh, across the world. Uh, three quarters of the cases in the UK have been linked to adenoviruses, which are uh, usually a cause of the common cold. 
but if the immune system is unable to fight off the virus and cause hepatitis. And this is the this is the concern. So let me just give you the scoreboard of where this is developing. In the United States, it's 11 cases, nine in Alabama, two in North Carolina. Ireland is about five, Belgium one, United Kingdom uh, 114, Norway two, Denmark six, Netherlands four, Romania one, Spain 13, France two, Italy four, and Israel 12. We could have a real problem on our hands if uh, the COVID-19 respiratory illness or even uh, the vaccine is setting up the liver for a hepatitis that can occur with a common adenoviral infection. Uh, we really could be in, in trouble here as a population. So I don't want to start too, too much uh, alarm. A few cases have gone all the way to liver transplantation, which is a very big deal. Uh, liver disease is critical. As many of you uh, have uh, listened, we do know, at least from the first paper from Marcus Alden in Malmo, Sweden, that the Pfizer vaccine through a reverse transcriptase called Line 1, uh, does reverse transcribe at least the central portion of the code for the Wuhan wild-type spike protein, the 444 middle, what's called amplicon chosen uh, bases, base pairs there out of the roughly 4,000 base pairs goes into liver cell chromatin in an experimental hepatoma cell line and was reverse transcribed within about six hours. So there is a setup for the liver cells to potentially take up messenger RNA, then be able to incorporate it into DNA and then have a superimposed infection with, let's say, an adenovirus or just a postpartum uh, pregnancy cholestatic picture and then really get into trouble. That's, I think, the most cohesive way to put it together, that uh, what we're seeing is a form of autoimmune hepatitis because the liver has taken up the messenger RNA uh, for the vaccines and, indeed, uh, now the liver is predisposed to a superimposed insult. What we need in each and every case, and this is what I've already responded to the news on, is we need a record of who has received the vaccine and when they did in relationship to COVID-19 vaccination. What we don't have for the vaccines is we don't have a well-characterized safety profile. And I want to review with you what I mean by that. That's an important regulatory term. So there's no better person to introduce that than Eric Bowling uh, on The Balance on Newsmax this week. Dr. McCullough, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, over the course of time, we've we've tried things, vaccines, medis medications, and it sometimes takes a while to find out what the real side effects and maybe unintended consequences of these of these may be. Is it possible something like that could happen here? It is true. We use a term in regulatory affairs called a well-characterized safety profile. That means we know what's going to happen when the product is used in a large number of individuals. So that exists for hydroxychloroquine, for ivermectin, for uh, uh, prednisone, dexamethasone, hydrocortisone, aspirin, colchicine, anoxaparin. So, the, you know, our workhorse drugs for COVID-19, we actually have well-characterized safety profiles. We simply don't have them for the genetic vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca. Uh, we don't have them, although we have pretty good data, supportive data for the monoclonal antibodies, which in my view have been safe and effective. We currently are using uh, the Lilly product and then the AstraZeneca product uh, prophylactically. 
and uh, and we really don't have them for the oral Pfizer or the oral Merck drug. So when patients are approached with these drugs, they have to understand that we don't have assurances on long-term safety. And one of those aspects of long-term safety is new things that can arise, including acute hepatitis. Uh, and so this story is just breaking. Uh, I think the release of the Pfizer documents under court order taught us a lot. And I had a previous post on the McCullough Report on the America Out Loud talk radio platform. And it said, one messenger RNA, 1,291 diseases, and really 190 1,291 basically different ways potentially to die, in this case, fatal hepatitis. So we learn more about the COVID-19 vaccines. They are certainly giving us a run for our money in terms of internal medicine and subspecialty medicine care. Doctors are working overtime fielding these vaccine injuries and wondering when in the world is it going to stop. So with that, we have a terrific show. Uh, I was on the Save a Generation tour in Florida on tour with some wonderful doctors. I had a chance on the road to interview two of them. One is Dr. Carrie Mede. And Dr. Mede is a very interesting doctor. She's done some tremendous things in her career. I would characterize her as a futurist. She is a futurist. She is looking forward to the future of what will happen with the human body and potentially transformation through a variety of different technologies. Uh, she's a wonderful stage presence and I, one who is really deeply rooted in her faith. And I've really been privileged to get to know her. And then another is a fan favorite. I would say almost a national phenom. And that's Dr. Ryan Cole. Dr. Ryan Cole, a graduate of uh, a military academy trained at the Mayo Clinic. He is as top shelf as you can get. And he's a clinical pathologist who has dedicated his clinical and scholarship efforts to the pathological findings that we are seeing with COVID-19 respiratory infection and after COVID-19 vaccination. So you can't get a better source of evidence-based information than Dr. Ryan Cole. So uh, we have a terrific backside and, uh, and I can't wait to get going with these interviews. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCulloch Report. Boy, I am so sick and tired of seeing hand sanitizer stations about every six feet in every building and every airport and every other public venue I walk through. The question isn't whether or not someone's hands are clean. The question is, is the air clean? And the only way to know is if these offices and these buildings and these houses, do they have a plan for clean air? Enter the Genesis Fogger. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCL in an atomized innovation that basically sterilizes the air. You can move this unit around in your house. It's portable and get the air cleaned. Put your house on a schedule, particularly those areas that you know are full of germs, including bathrooms, including other areas where you're caring for seniors or for uh, uh, other individuals with disabilities. You know what I'm talking about. There are places in the house that are less clean than others, and the Genesis Fogger is the solution. It not only uh, kills common viruses, bacteria, and mold spores, but it provides a fresh fragrance 
for the room, and it can give assurances to you and your guests that your house is as clean and as safe as possible. So check out the Genesis Fogger, go to the website, and enter in the promo code out loud for a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to bring to the microphone for the first time Dr. Carrie Madej. Dr. Madej is, I think, one of the most interesting and dynamic doctors I think I've met in my entire life. Uh, She grew up in Michigan. She attended Central Michigan University and then uh, went on from there to medical school at the Kansas City Osteopathic School of Medicine, a really well-recognized institution. I know because I was the chief of cardiology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So I lived in Kansas City and was very familiar with it. She went on to the state of Georgia and she trained there at multiple institutions. And she does. She did a traditional internship and then trained in internal medicine and then went on the, from there to launch basically an internal medicine practice. And she was very involved in teaching. And the reason why I'm bringing Carrie to the microphone is I want to know what activated her in such a way to become a public figure in COVID-19. Carrie, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you for the amazing introduction. Um, I, When this pandemic started, I thought it was quite odd. We were in a lockdown, and I started to read up about this so-called virus, and then I saw that, init- that really quickly they were going to introduce a vaccine to everybody, and I thought that was curious, so I started to read about it, and I saw the ingredients, the modified messenger RNA, the nanolipid uh, particle, which I recognize as a type of hydrogel, and I was very upset because I learned about these from meetings that I have attended, scientific meetings, as well as even business owners' meetings, believe it or not. And um, I feel that these ingredients need to be uh, discussed before we use them on mass scale on people. Their implications are much more than the average person could ever imagine. We are messing with the genetics, our precious genome that we've been given by God. And um, the technology being used is definitely in its infancy. We do not understand the ramifications long-term of this. And we are experimenting with human life. So Now, Carrie, I think many Americans, including myself, recall, I think, a relatively famous video that you made. And I'll never forget it, where you actually were in tears near the end of the video. And as I recall, that came out before the vaccines. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Um, That's a a video that I was just doing for a small group of people. I was educating, and I didn't expect it to go viral. Um, And it surely did. I, I had such a great response, I then decided I would 
start educating people more. And I returned to the United States. I was in the Dominican Republic doing missionary work, and here I am. That's my passion. I have to tell the audience, I think when people see the real thing, when they see passion, they know it's real. And when I saw this, I saw this beautiful young doctor, and she was in tears. The first thing I did, I showed it to my wife. I said, listen, the, the vaccines haven't come out yet. And it was about the same time that I published an op-ed in The Hill, the Republican Journal. And I said, this is a gamble. This is the great gamble of the COVID-19 pandemic. Carrie, why has the ingredient list of any of these vaccines not been released to the public? I believe we are, we are still in an experimental stage and um, the manufacturers seem to be um, not being honest and in my studies that I've done it appears that perhaps the ingredients may be changing. Now this is just my opinion. Um, but in experiments, sometimes they don't want you to know all the ingredients as well. We have to be careful about that. We're in, under in, um, the Emergency Act and under PrEP Act, so with that, that gives them large leeway to do many things to us. We don't understand that our rights are being, our human rights are being um, uh, violated. We can stay just at the clear objective reporting level to recognize that the Japanese rejected nearly two million lots of Moderna because of debris in the vaccines. And recently now millions of Pfizer's vaccines have been uh, rejected because of quality control issues. We do know that the vaccines for the pediatric administration where there's a lower uh, dose of messenger RNA have changed the buffer without having the typical regulatory dossier to make these changes. But I think the most disturbing piece of information that's moved forward is with the release of the Pfizer dossier, just the first tranche of data, under pressure from the federal courts, lead attorney Aaron Siri, and what we learned in the first release of the Pfizer documents was stunning and confirming your suspicions that Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths reported by doctors, nurses, by, by pharmaceutical liaisons, others in the field within 90 days of release of the Pfizer vaccine, 1,291 uh, adverse events of special interest carry. How can one single product cause so many deaths and create so many different diseases when widely released within 90 days? Well, because we're using brand new technology never before released on humanity. Uh, we're using something that is affecting our genetics as well as using nanotechnology and using a substance called hydrogel, which is brand new again on humans. So we're introducing all of these things at once. Of course we can expect a myriad of issues. And the animal studies, we already knew some of the things to expect. Um, you know, short-term and long-term. So these are things that are not surprising to me. These are things that have been reported before. Um, so it makes you wonder if we knew how dangerous it could be to people and we're pushing, I'm talking collectively, um, it's being pushed on us, 
what could be another motivation to do this? That's what I think. I look at the money, follow the money. Also look at the people that really want us to get it. Do they have other agendas going on? And that's what I look at because it doesn't make sense to me that we have lost the sacredness of life. In medicine, why are we not having tr uh, proper informed consent? Why are we pushing this on our children when we are supposed to protect them at all costs? So I have to see and look at another agenda, and that's what I do. And what about conflict of interest? I'm sure you've given uh, continuing medical education lectures where you have to disclose all your relationships and, and who's uh, providing the, the, the lunch meal and, and all of this. When you see a pharmaceutical president on major TV advising America to use the product of his company, What's your reaction? Oh, it's a very biased opinion that he's telling you. So you have to look at it through that lens. You have to understand that that person's not giving you um, an opinion that's based on your best interest. It's coming from their jaded interest or their 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 viewpoint, I should say. So we have to get something that is uh, not biased. That's uh, that's what an institutional review board is supposed to do. That we're supposed to have. I've not been seeing much of that going on where it's truly in the interest of protecting life, saving life, and and doing it for the right purposes instead of having corporations rule and tell and, and run the show and say which direction are we going to go for this so-called pandemic. And how about the uh, traffic between the FDA and the company? So Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner on the board at Pfizer, advising America on vaccines on CNBC Squawk Box in the morning. We have after him Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner that really worked to effectively block hydroxychloroquine, really bungle the use of convalescent plasma, uh, have oversight on just uh, the most chaotic pandemic response with respect to therapeutics and COVID-19. He joins the investment capital firm supporting Moderna. We have Carrie, mm -hmm. I think, in the open. This is not even attempting to be concealed. Mm -hmm. Wide open conflict of interest. Carrie, where is the outrage among physicians and the practice community? Amen to that because I am very disappointed in our profession. I don't even recognize it anymore. We used to really value a human life. We took our oath seriously, first do no harm. I still do that and I know you do that. And um, our government entities are not doing that. Our fellow colleagues are not doing that. They should take a stand because this is, this is a special sacred oath that you take. And I'm calling out all of our colleagues. I'm calling out everybody in government programs and everybody that is in government institutions to do the right thing and to stand for what is right. This is out of control. Now tell us what you personally are doing in terms of your public presence. Where have you been in the country, in the world since COVID-19? Uh, I try to educate people through social media platforms. I have a web page, carrymate.com, to educate people. Also, I have free downloadable resources for them, how to make your body healthy so that your terrain is a strong, healthy body so you don't have to depend on pharmaceutical drugs because our body is made wonderfully and fearfully. And my opinion, why is everything happening right now? It boils down to one thing, that we took God out of everything. If we bring God back into the schools, the homes, the churches, ourselves, then we will know the right thing to do. 
And I know you and I have been on faculty and on stage at several events. Roughly how many different events have you spoken at in the last two years? Give us an estimate. Oh, I I would have to really think about that. Probably it's, I don't know, maybe about 15 in person. Absolutely fantastic. I can tell you, Carrie's doing the same thing I am doing. We are spending every free moment, every free uh, weekend that we possibly can on the road. I know I'm approaching 30 public programs. Uh, we are together doing four in a row on the Save a Generation Tour in Florida with packed audiences, discerning attendees, people reaching out, and they want to know the truth. Now, Carrie, how can our listeners follow you? Uh, I have a webpage. It's my first and last name, CarrieMade.com, C-A-R-R-I-E-M-A-D-E-J. And from there, they can see it's pretty easy to understand, downloadable resources, videos, etc. Fantastic. I'll let that be the last word. Thanks for joining us on the McCullough Report. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a, an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's immune super boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the microphone for the first time well known physician, Dr. Ryan Cole. Dr. Cole 
uh, went to uh, his undergraduate at the Air Force Academy, one of the most prestigious institutions in the United States, nearly impossible to get into. Uh, so you know he's top of his class. He then went on to the Medical College of Virginia, received his MD degree, and then he trained in pathology at the legendary Mayo Clinic. From there, he went on to New York and received additional uh, uh, training. Uh, he has been the chief fellow, uh, as I was in cardiovascular disease, he was, but his specialty is pathology. And I want him to explain just a four, in a few words about what is pathology and how do pathologists as doctors, how do they interface with the rest of the medical community? And then we'll get into the rest of the interview. Dr. Cole, welcome to the McCullough Report. Dr. McCullough, it's an honor to be here with you. I'm uh, always happy to see you as we cross paths on these lecture tours with wonderful uh, teachers and faculty and physician colleagues. As a pathologist, uh, we're the quality control of medicine. That's our job. We look at medicine and we look at what's right, what's wrong, what's different. So we're always looking at patterns. What change do we see in the patterns? So on a daily basis, I'm looking through the microscope at biopsies. I'm looking at uh, blood results. I'm interpreting them. I'm the doctor to the doctor. I tell people the pathologist is the most important doctor that you never meet that you always hope is right. That's our, that's our day job, to be right, to get a diagnosis to the doctor so the patient can be appropriately treated. And you have uh, credentials in several different aspects of pathology. Why don't you tell us about that? Correct. When I was in medical school, I was an MD-PhD student. I did a year of uh, PhD immunology work, working on dendritic cells. Actually set up the lab that helped prove how dendritic cells um, were passing HIV into T cells. So did some pioneering research into dendritic cells, had a baby on the way, decided not to be a doctor doctor, just a doctor. So uh, ended up just doing a year of uh, PhD work in immunology, part of my virology training um, through my clinical pathology certification at Mayo um, is in-depth virology, molecular biology, molecular diagnostics. So did that while I was at Mayo. Um, a lot of tissue diagnostics is my my day-to-day -day focus as well. Now that's anatomic pathology. Anatomic pathology, correct. Right. So I look at the the biopsies of the patients, cancer, not cancer, infectious, not infectious, what kind of infection, using protein markers, using molecular techniques to identify all the complexity of disease. And then also dermatopathology. You have that's training my there. subspecialty, uh, certainly. So I trained in dermatopathology under the world expert uh, through Columbia. Uh, Dr. A. Bernard uh, Ackerman, the late Dr. Ackerman, who literally had written half the uh, literature in the field of dermatopathology, and so I was his chief fellow as well while in training in New York City. Well, over the course of medical history, in terms of new diseases, outbreaks, plagues, uh, through the advancement of medicine, the autopsy has really a storied and very important history. Can you tell our audiences what are we learning from autopsies of patients who die with COVID-19 and then those who die after vaccination? That's a great question. And this has been a, a very unfortunate aspect of this last two years. Historically, you can see the Renaissance paintings of individuals around the cadaver trying to learn anatomy and then through the years of medicine, 
before advanced scanning technology, the way to find out what was happening internally in, in deceased patients was to do that autopsy. Unfortunately, some of our federal officials, um, including Dr. Fauci, discouraged autopsies during SARS-CoV-2. I always say you cannot find that for which you do not look. And we've had a dearth of information uh, in terms of SARS-CoV-2 side effects, autopsy findings. And finally, uh, coming to light are more autopsies. People are frustrated. Private family members have been requesting them privately. Normally, institutions used to do these. It used to be part of the teaching routine for grand rounds, for physicians to get together and review what could we have done differently for this patient. So now around the world, I have some colleagues in Germany, Dr. Burkhardt's group, has been leading the charge on autopsies in Europe. Again, not as, not, not as many as we would like to see. Um, I've been receiving some autopsy tissues from around the country from private individuals and families as well to review the tissues. The findings we're seeing both post-vaccine death as well as post-COVID death are very similar. We know from the Salk Institute study that the spike protein has a toxic effect on organs and vessel linings. So those changes that we're seeing in the lungs in a COVID-infected patient are similarly happening in just a vaccinated patient. Similarly, COVID, the earlier variants were very clotting and we're seeing similar clotting conditions in the post-vaccinated injured and deceased patients as well. And there's a plethora of findings, and that's just obviously the tip of the iceberg. But we're, we're finding things that we should have known early on. So from an interventional point of view, we could have focused on inflammation. We could have focused on clotting. We could have focused on are the vaccines safe and effective, or what kind of damage are those causing to the human body? Now, in your estimation, if a patient dies with COVID, let's say they come into the hospital, they have background conditions, and they die with COVID, or if a patient has medical problems and they take the vaccine and they die, uh, let's say, within 30 days of taking the vaccine, and the family says, we want an autopsy, what's your estimate in both of those scenarios of the yield? And what I mean by that is the autopsy examination giving some new information that could be helpful in understanding the case? I would say at least half of the time you find something. And I think that's, that's the important aspect, is you never know what you're going to find. But again, if you don't look, you won't find it. So at least half of the time, uh, more often, even greater than that, um, the, the clinical sometimes just doesn't show what we can see at the microscopic level. So when we see the cellular damage, when we see deposition of certain proteins, we know certain pathways have been turned on. That's where the autopsy really yields information. And it helps us understand the disease better. It helps us understand from a mechanism's point of view, which medicines would be even more effective. Because we can get down to the detail of very small proteins expressed on cells, on, on viral capsids, on bacteria, on all sorts of different things. We can, we can stain for other viruses. We can stain for reactivation of other inflammatory um, diseases. We can, 
we can get as complex as one wants to get academically. And this is where I wish there were more NIH funding for this type of research. It's so critical if we claim to have a novel new virus disease pandemic, then as much funding as is going towards certain measures should also go to studying of the disease without an agenda, without an, a narrative. Pathology is neutral. We are the reporters at the scene of a crash. We don't cause a disease, we don't prevent a disease, we don't necessarily treat a disease. We report on the process happening. Uh, I spent nearly a decade on every Monday afternoon uh, attending and actually providing the clinical commentary on an academic autopsy pathology conference, of which was attended by students, residents, and fellows. We had a very senior cardiac pathologist, the most senior cardiac pathologist in the world's history, who uh, was leading that. But we had a general pathologist uh, who did the non-cardiac findings, and it was very academic. And some of the papers that were quoted at that conference were that before COVID, an academic autopsy, which would be not only the, uh, the anatomic findings and the histology and the staining, but actually also could involve uh, pre-dissection CT scanning, would involve actually genetic testing so we can get genetic material that the yield of that full service academic autopsy was exceeding 75% in finding valuable information that helps understand the case, helps guide the family in bringing closure or even uh, more importantly guiding the family members themselves to potentially avoiding some future catastrophic effect. But that's anatomic pathology. The patients who are alive and who've had COVID-19 or the vaccine, they are interested in clinical pathology. What can be learned from the clinical laboratory evaluation? What, what, what do you have for us there? So clinical pathology is very important for the living, as you, as you mentioned. Those are the blood tests. Those are the molecular tests. Those are swabs. Those are uh, cultures of bodily fluids. The values in those tests give us markers of inflammation. We can look at populations of inflammatory white blood cells. Are T cells decreased? Is the body being adversely affected by loss of certain subsets within our blood? Are there clotting factors that are increased? Is there presence of a circulating virus at the time? Is there presence of a circulating spike protein, which we know we can find now based on many, many studies? So uh, also activation of latent viruses. A lot of individuals post-COVID or post-vaccination because of immune suppression are ill and chronically fatigued due to activation of other latent microbes within the body which is very important. The other thing we can look at in the laboratory is mitochondrial dropout. We can look at damage to mitochondria, which we've been seeing from the spike protein. So there are so many aspects of laboratory medicine that will point to the underlying problem that is manifesting clinically. So let's take the uh, case example of acute COVID-19. Someone comes in, they have acute COVID-19. Now let's leave the diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2 off the table for this interview. So the antigen and PCR testing. Let's say somebody has COVID and they get blood testing. 
Are there blood tests in someone with acute COVID that are prognostic, that can tell us if a patient's going to have a mild course or a severe course? Generally, yes. Um, if a patient, and this is one I wish all hospitals would do, check a vitamin D level on the patient. I always point out that vitamin D is like the conductor of your immune system, and it brings in the sections, mezzoforte, forte, fades out certain sections, brings in other sections, and then fades into a beautiful immune symphony. If a patient is vitamin D deficient, their immune system is like the mosh pit at a punk rock concert, just crashing together. So in the laboratory, we can measure the, the side effects of an infection through what are the white blood cell counts? Are your neutrophils high? Are your lymphocytes low? And we can also look at inflammatory cytokine markers. We hear about the cytokine storm in COVID. One of the most important inflammatory ones is interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 will induce other cascades of other inflammatory interleukins. And one gets an augmented basically amplifying inflammatory process instead of a calming inflammatory process. And medically getting that under control becomes very critical early in the disease. So if one can intervene knowing these blood values early on, then we can hopefully save those patients. So a patient comes in uh, with acute COVID-19, let's say they go to an urgent care center, and let's say they get every blood test you just mentioned and everything's normal. Uh, I mean, is that somewhat reassuring that the patient's going to have a more benign course? Um, generally, yes. Okay. How about this? Patient comes in. Uh, they have lymphocyte depression. They do get a vitamin D level, and it's far below that safety level of 50. It's, let's say it's 24. They get um, a blood chemistry panel and already they have an elevation of the AST and ALT, the transaminases. The serum creatinine is up more than its baseline. They get a D-dimer test, yes. Yes. and the D-dimer is elevated. And let's say they do a Cadillac. This would happen at my institution. They measure an interleukin-6, and it's up. Is that enough information for you to be able to tell the patient, listen, this is going to be a rocky road, and we need to have closer follow-up? I think absolutely. I think you nailed it because those are hallmark blood markers of a severe infection and, and a, a pending course that is concerning. Another one that's interesting that's been left out, and there was a good study on this. I, I'll have to find the author. Inter, uh, interferon 1 is critical for our body to fight off infections. Interferon 1 is critical for our body to fight off cancer. We've noticed a set percentage of the population, and this may explain some of those patients that one says, gosh, they look healthy and well, but there's no reason they should have passed from COVID. In the younger cohort, it's about 6% of individuals have an antibody against their own interferon, an autoantibody. As we get older, up into the 60s and 70s, up to 15 to 20% of individuals can have a self-attacking antibody against their interferon. And that's very prognostic in terms of one's ability to mount an infection response. An additional one is a very important antibody we have in our body called IgA. Secretory IgA is in our mucosa, our nose, our throat, our tears. Some people are IgA deficient, 
And for any infection, be it COVID, be it influenza, be it any respiratory infection, if an individual knows that they have an IgA deficiency, no matter what respiratory illness comes along, they're at a predisposed risk for a worse course of disease. These are three simple things we could have really used to triage patients throughout this last two years. You know, I would add one additional factor, and I believe I've gone over this with one of our experts on the McCullough Report, and it's a simple one. It's blood glucose and the hemoglobin A1C. What do we know about individuals with hyperglycemia and diabetes with acute COVID-19? They do poorly. And having an elevated chronic glucose, there was an AI study that looked at all the papers written on COVID, and the one word that pinged hundreds of thousands of medics, RIV studies, peer-reviewed published studies, et cetera, but that one word that pinged for poor outcome is exactly to your point, sugar slash glucose. Whatever that blood sugar was, that puts one at a much, much higher risk for a poor outcome. And we operationalize this. I can tell you as a medical doctor, I prescribe anti-diabetic medications and insulin. Uh, I routinely now, based on the proponents of the literature, steer patients away from sugary foods and drinks, away from starch during the acute phase of COVID-19 because in a sense, sugar feeds the infection. There is a a wealth of papers on this. Um, I think the vitamin D information is operational. I do check this in my routine clinical practice. People are running low. I let them know about the meta-analysis finding a threshold at 50 and it could be higher. But there are so many patients who run deficient in vitamin D. Some patients actually say, Dr. McCullough, I'm taking 5,000 international units a day. I can't believe I'm sitting at 38. And I'll say, well, for you, you need to take probably double the dose a couple days a week and get some sun. Get some sun on the face and skin. This morning, uh, on the beautiful white beaches of Destin, Florida, in the morning, I went for a run. And afterwards, I was walking on the beach. The sun was coming up. What did I do? I took my shirt off partly because no one was around, (laughs) but also because I wanted a little bit of vitamin D conversion. So in the last part of this, I really, really want to capitalize on your expertise, really the first pathologist I brought on the McCullough Report. And I want to discuss, because I get so many questions about this, about taking the vaccine and the pathophysiology, the biology of antibody-dependent enhancement. What is ADE? And explain it to our audience in an understandable way. In an understandable way, when we get an infection, we mount an immune response and form antibodies to that pathogen. An antibody is forever. We have memory cells that make those antibodies. Now, we also form T-cell memory, which is important as well. A lot of people focus on what are my antibody levels. Really, if you get a broad natural infection, you remember the entire infection. If you get a vaccine, you're only making a response to a small portion of the infection, the spike protein in this case. Antibody-dependent enhancement, you want those antibodies to bind to the pathogen. So when your immune system comes along and sees that virus coated in that antibody, it knows to gobble it up, break it down, and clear it. That's what a normal immune response should be, your body fighting off the infection, clearing the invaders, and done. Antibodies can bind and neutralize. That's a good clearance of an infection. However, 
the little tail, people have seen the Y shape of these antibodies. On the little tail, if an antibody binds and then that tail doesn't shut off, so normally it'll shut off and the body will say, okay, it shut off, it's closed, it's coated, I'll eat it. If that little tail on that antibody bound to the virus stays open, now it can bind to a receptor on our Pac-Man cells, our macrophages, and that is called FC-gamma receptor. So that FC-gamma receptor now tickles and, and, and says, gosh, the tail of that antibody looks tasty. And now the virus, instead of being gobbled up by your immune system, gets Trojan-horsed into that Pac-Man cell, into that monocyte. And now it overtakes the inside of your inflammatory cell that should be fighting and clearing infection and uses it as a replication factory. When that happens, now all sorts of inflammatory cytokines, a little fire happens in these cells. It will kill off many of them. And a recent study that came out, um, Junkieradol, talks about at least 6% of the monocytes in the patients studied were infected by the virus, by antibody-dependent enhancement reaction. This was just published April 6th in Nature. It's caused, we can see it in severe infections. We can see it in some patients from the monoclonal antibodies. There was a paper written by Lee et al. in 2020 explaining the risks of antibody-dependent enhancement before the vaccines were rolled out. We knew we were playing with fire. We knew this was a possibility based on SARS-CoV-1. So to have a binding non-neutralizing antibody is adversely um, impactful on your immune response because now your immune cells are infected, not just your mucosal cells, not just tissue cells in the body, but your actual fighters are now viral factories because that antibody lets the virus Trojan horse into a cell line it should not be in. So let me make sure I understand this. I think I've just heard the best explanation of antibody-dependent enhancement I've ever heard. An antibody looks like a Y. The, the two ends of the Y, the V end of the Y, that's called the FAB fragment. The stick the or the FC. tail is the FC fragment. So if the Y binds the virus, but the stick actually allows ingress uh, or entry into monocytes, the virus itself, instead of being zapped, is actually brought into monocytes, can infect those cells, and this can take off like wildfire. Now, in a previously unaffected individual who's never taken a vaccine, who's never had COVID before, they shouldn't have any of this, right? Because there's Correct. no circulating antibodies. Correct. But what if someone's had COVID? Could they have uh, Could they have ADE? They can. They can. Um, it's not as common in someone who's had the full infection because, again, your body remembers not just the spike protein, but the membrane, the envelope, the nucleocapsid. So you have a broad array of antibodies. So you may have some binding non-neutralizing, but you have all that other complement so your body can still fight off that secondary infection without having this hyperimmune reaction. Plus you have the T cells, right? The Memory T cells, T cells are critical. And natural killer cells. And a paper I quote is by Hakeem and colleagues demonstrating just within the known library that was assessed with a natural infection, at least 15 different epitopes of various parts of the virus that the body recognizes. 
Now, let's discuss the vaccines. Someone has never had COVID before, but they take a COVID-19 vaccine and they have this limited library of antibodies just against the spike protein. What happens there? This is a problem because the virus for the which these shots were designed is extinct. The Wuhan variant went extinct in humanity over a year ago. Omicron is here. We know from multiple studies, even early in Delta, towards the N-terminal domain, there were at least 12 binding non-neutralizing antibodies induced by the shots. Now an individual getting a shot, and we have a different virus present now, the ability for those antibodies formed from the shot to become neutralizing is very low. Now we have just a small complement that are binding non-neutralizing, which is the perfect setup for an antibody-dependent enhancement reaction. So getting a shot, not having had COVID, and getting exposed to a new variant of the virus is the perfect historical pathognomonic setup for an enhancement reaction. And it's going to bring more virus into the body. Correct. So as the virus is replicating the nasal passages, getting some ingress into the system through ACE2 receptors, there is uh, a viremia, meaning the virus is in the bloodstream, and now the antibodies from the vaccine, in a non-sterilizing way, bind to the virus and let it further infect the monocytes and make things worse, as Correct. opposed to the virus being uh, handled by the um, you know the body's natural immune system. This has been. An amazing, amazing interview. I think everybody is going to want to replay this one. Dr. Cole, do you have any final words for our McCullough Report audience? We cannot find that for which we do not look. We need to be scientific about everything. I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. I think message of hope is we're learning more. People are waking up to the science and the truth. More of our colleagues are now looking at these important things. More papers are coming out. More research is being done. We need to help people not be hurt. That is our job. First, do no harm. We've done many things unscientifically during this pandemic. We need to rely upon the science, the data, and be logical and caring in our approach. And the other good message is a lot of people haven't been hurt. That's great news. So let's emphasize the hope, the positive. Let's get back to real life. Let's get back to solid, real science. And I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and your listeners today. I'll let that be the last word, Dr. Ryan Cole. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.